The Real Food Reel is proudly sponsored by LCHF Endurance. Stabilize your blood sugar, burn fat, decrease inflammation and become fat adapted in just 12 weeks. I'm so excited to share with you that LCHF Endurance is currently 50% off for a limited time only. Simply use the code LCHFE50 to sample the program, check out the kind of meals you'll get to eat and cancel within seven days if it's not your sugar-free jam. Head to lchfendurance.com.au and use the code LCHFE50 for 50% off your upfront program payment today. Welcome to The Real Food Real. I'm Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist. We're shaking things up on the podcast and each week I am joined by our cast of experts, including Kirsty Worth, Phil Maffetone, Kale Brock, Ali McLean, Katie Pettuccini and so many more leaders in the fields of real food, gut health, sports performance, holistic wellness and optimising your health, metabolism and longevity. While you're tuning in to today's episode, would you take a screenshot of your smartphone and share it on social media with the hashtag RealFoodReal? I'd absolutely love to know that you're tuning in. And while you're there, why not share this episode with a friend who also needs to hear our information goldmines and aha moments. Sharing the show means we can continue our mission of simplifying nutrition and showing the world that health starts with what you choose to put on your plate. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode of The Real Food Real. In episode 260 of The Real Food Real, Ellie McLean, nutritionist here at The Natural Nutritionist, shares with you how to optimize your plant-based lifestyle. Hear more about Ellie's background, including her personal health journey from food intolerances, chronic candida, gastritis, and parasite infection to where she is today. You will learn about the long-term risks of PPI use, dysbiosis, the influence of antibiotics on gut health and common parasite infections. Ellie then starts to explore plant-based nutrition, including when it's the right time to make a change, if at all. You'll also take away key considerations for doing plant-based well and why gut health is such an important part of your plant-based strategy. Ellie, thank you so much for being here with me on the Plant-Based Body Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to talk to you and to have you share your wisdom and your knowledge with my listeners. I'd really like for you to go back to the very start and tell me about where you grew up and your childhood and that sort of thing. Okay. So I was born in Melbourne, Australia. And when I was young, so when I was about six months old, my family and I moved to Indonesia. So the first six years of my life was spent in Jakarta working. My my father works there with a British company. um, And interestingly, Indonesian was my first language. So I didn't even learn to speak English first. My first words were Indonesian words. You're joking. Not joking, but don't ask me if I can speak it now because I don't actually remember a word other than food (laughs) and water, which is quite, you know. (laughs) Yeah. The quite necessities, cool, quite obviously. ironic, given what I do. Yeah. Yes. So the first 
six years of my life was spent there in Jakarta and um, my mum decided it was time for us to leave when I think as a child I started to get a bit accustomed to the expat lifestyle. We had nannies, we had maids and I think I started to act a little bit like that was expected of life. Mm. So mum made the decision that we would come back to Melbourne. So from about the age of six um, have lived in Melbourne and started school then. I was young for my years so because I'd done some sc- some schooling with the, with the British system in Indonesia. They start school a bit earlier there. So then I came back to Australia and there was sort of this question as to whether I would start prep or whether I'd start grade one. Yeah. Uh, and I was like too young, but the teachers said that I was too emotionally intelligent to go down to prep. Wow. Not intelligent, emotionally intelligent. (laughs) There's a difference. (laughs) Um, Unfortunately, there is. But anyway, yeah, so I have always been younger than the people around me. And it sort of only just started to catch up with me in the last couple of years. But I I think it's because of that. Like I started school at a young age and I've always felt a little bit older than my years. Did you know English when you came to Australia? Yeah, Yeah, I did. So So by then? By then, absolutely. So my schooling, my kindergarten, I went to like a British school, a British kindergarten. It was only because when I was so young that I was hanging out with like my nanny most of the day and so Mm. there'd be like a lot of Indonesian words used. But, you know, my parents would be speaking to me in English and my brother and sister. Yeah. Yeah. But Indonesian food was 100% what I grew up on. So amazing. I love Indonesian food. So do I. Mm. Um, And I... Yeah, I sort of say that's. I never get gastro. Mm-hmm. I never ever get gastro. I have other digestive challenges, which I'm sure we'll go into today. We definitely will. But I never get gastro, and I think maybe it's come down to because I grew up on like yeah. warung food. Like I used to sit out in front of our house at the warung with the maids eating curry. God, that's perfect because mm. barley belly is hell. Yeah, I never get barley belly. Oh, <laughs> you are lucky. Mm. So lucky, inverted commas. You'll hear about my gut issues in. Oh, I'm excited to hear about them. Mm. So, what happened next? So, um, went to school in Melbourne. Went to primary school at Brighton Primary. Left primary school and went to high school. So, I went to Caulfield Grammar, which is a a very sporty school. Okay. And I wasn't so much like into into like traditional sports, but I was a dancer. So I was always very interested in movement, active, being active, um, and danced from I don't know, probably as, as when I got back to Australia from Indonesia, right through to year eleven. Wow. Mm. Wow. So I loved activity, loved sport, but I was terrible at sports. So put a ball in my hand, completely retarded and really? un- uncoordinated, I should say. <laughs> so um, uh, I didn't really excel in any of the ball sports or team sports, but I was incredibly competitive. So okay. I was still like a like a valid and worthy member of the team, mm-hmm. but I just wasn't overly great. So. You had the drive. <laughs> I had the drive. Just not the skill. <laughs> just not the skill, no. <laughs> so I played soccer, I played tennis, I didn't play netball. I always got caught out for... Um, What's in netball? You can't, you can't step with the ball? Oh, Is that netball? I never played, honestly. Okay, yeah. yeah. I always got put out for that. And contact. <laughs> always contact in netball. Oh, a bit cheeky. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I was always surrounded by sport. Um, this, the school had, like, a very strong ATS program, strong footy program. 
And I think that's where uh, I started to really think a lot about sport nutrition. Yeah. So really thinking about like I just was like, well, what are these what are these people eating for breakfast before they go out for the game? Or what if they ate this for breakfast? Would they jump higher? Would they run faster? Would they feel better? You know, I watched a lot of Iron Man on the TV as well. Yeah. I think it's because my friends thought the Iron Man Iron Man really cute, so I would like watch it. But I thought the Iron Man were cute, but I was also thinking what are they eating? Like, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing really, to have such a curiosity for those types of things back then. It is. It is. And I don't know, part of me thinks that maybe it was because I was a dancer, so I was always very body conscious. You know, if you're doing dance, like your teachers are poking your stomach and poking your bottom and you're very body conscious from an early age. Wow, that sounds rough. Mm, yeah, I mean, I wasn't even at like you know, elite, elite levels. So who knows what, like, what they were who doing knows what it's like at those levels. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. But I was conscious of my body from an early age. And mm. so therefore conscious of what goes into my body yeah. and that, and being interested in sports and being interested in being really good at sport probably filled that interest in, okay, what should you eat if you're going to do sport? Yeah, definitely. Mm. Like a lot of other girls, I, I, think that probably my mum had an influence as well on that interest in food and yeah. and body consciousness. She was always on every diet under the sun. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that rubs off on you. you Absolutely, know, it does. You, when you hear that being talked about. Yeah, we are a product of our environment. If mm-hmm. we're going to see an elder doing something, we're most likely to do it ourselves. Yeah, exactly. And that's really that, that subconscious behaviour is developed in the first seven years of your life and... Mm-hmm. And your mum wouldn't have meant anything by it. She wouldn't have had any idea it was having this effect on you, but undoubtedly it was. Absolutely not. Yeah, she wouldn't, she wouldn't have nah. wouldn't have done it if she thought it was having that that impact. Yeah. So how did it impact you exactly? Um, I, for a very long time, had a very age old mentality around nutrition, which is calories in versus calories out. Yep. Yep. Heard that one. <laughs> <laughs> so you want to maintain a body weight. You want to uh, gain body mass you want to lose body mass it's calories in versus calories out and my my mum I love you mum by the way um she was on Jenny Craig she was on Weight Watchers she was on lots of different things and what are they all they're all calorie counting programs I didn't calorie count when I was at school but I was very aware of what they were yeah and I studied nutrition straight out of high school Mm -hmm. and I think actually my relationship with food became a lot worse in the three years where I was at university you think so? Absolutely. How so? Um, because because there was so much talk around calories, mm-hmm. learning how many calories were in food, there was a lot of talk about calorie restriction to lose lose weight. That was – I went to university a little while ago now, yeah. just over 10 years, and it was still – there was still the old model of um, calories in versus calories out being discussed. Mm-hmm. Um, and the you know carbohydrates are preferred over fats because per gram there's fewer calories or fewer kilojoules. Yeah. So through uni, I, I somehow got it into my mind that to be a good nutritionist and to really take care of your diet, you just had to eat fewer calories. Wow. Mm. And I'm, I'm hoping your mindset has completely changed now. Oh, absolutely! I couldn't do what I do now if my mindset around food was calories in versus calories out. Like. Yeah. I um I I still still always took like a relatively holistic approach to food. You know, I didn't love eating processed food uh, 
you know, even as a teenager, for some reason, I just was not not drawn to it. Yeah. Um, but my relationship with food has just like it's done. A, I've done a one eighty over the last ten years. You know, it's amazing. I I I, I just I couldn't could not be doing what I'm what I'm doing now if food was seen as a mechanism to gain weight or to lose weight mm. rather than a tool to fuel like optimal health. Yeah. And that's where it has to change is that mindset between, you know, you are eating to fuel your body. You really have to eat because of that reason, don't you? Absolutely. People have to understand that, you know, food is fuel for the, like, the most basic um, basic form in our body, you know, the cells. Mm-hmm. And if we're not treating it that way, then we're not going to be feeding our cells what they need. And, you know, if your cells aren't getting what they need, then reactions aren't taking place, hormones aren't being produced, homeostasis isn't being achieved, and you end up in trouble. So people have to understand and get connected to the fact that food is fuel, food is medicine, um, and it's not just that mechanism to achieve an ideal body body weight or body composition amen Mm -hmm. completely agree with you Mm -hmm. and hopefully this episode will really help people in that understanding and hopefully change their mentality around it as well because of course you know it's not just your body that you're fueling it's also if you're feeding your body the wrong things then it's also not fueling a good mindset you know your body image low self-esteem that sort of thing so it really is a full circle yes exactly and some of like i do have a lot of weight loss clients that i work with Mm -hmm. um but they're not asked to count calories. Yeah. But confidence is a big thing. So even if the first three weeks of working together, if they can literally stick to a plan, and I take a consultative approach when it comes to creating a plan for a client, so it's never me just saying you have to do this yeah. because they've got to be bought into the process. But if we can create a plan and if they can stick to that plan, regardless of whether they you know, lose weight initially or not, the confidence that is gained from just setting that goal, working towards it and achieving it, you know, just like setting the goal of I'm going to have a smoothie and it's going to have spinach in it for the next three weeks. When they can achieve that, they feel so great about themselves. When you feel good about yourself, you're far more likely to continue the behaviour and open yourself up to other healthful behaviours. Exactly. Couldn't agree with you more. I'd really like to go back to your time at university and how perhaps your body image was able to get better after you finished. What was the turning point? Um, I'm just trying to think. I So I think in leaving university and not, not constantly having the discussion around that, that discussion around food helped. Mm. Uh, I loved university, by the way. Like I was enthralled by much of it, but it, mm. somehow it did create this negative um, behaviour and thought pattern. I think it probably wasn't until I started hanging out with people that weren't as obsessed with food and okay. nutrition. So I left uni uh, and I distinctly, distinctly remember um, a boyfriend of mine sort of I was hanging out with him after uni and him and his friends would, this is going to sound so ridiculous, but they would eat chocolate after dinner. Yeah. And I would never have eaten chocolate after dinner. So yeah. I was like, oh, look at these people just taking it easy. Like, look at these people not caring that much. And I think that that helped me to, to start to not care Good as life. much. I obviously still cared, yeah. but there was like a little light, a little yeah. loosening of the reins. You can relax a little bit Yes. Yeah. Like, yeah. That sounds really helpful. And um, I think from that point, the, the relationship did, did start to change. That's amazing. Yeah. That's really positive because we 
I think full restriction is just never really that sustainable long-term either. No, exactly not. It, it, it just isn't. And if you are restricting, if you are restricting for the long-term and, and you are sticking to it but despite health challenges, mm-hmm. then you're going to end up in a world of pain. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about talking about plant-based nutrition mm-hmm. because people, people take on a plant-based lifestyle for very strong reasons, usually. You know, usually yeah. there's strong ethical reasons, they've got concerns around sustainability, and sometimes those values outweigh the individual's worth of their own health, Yes, the, the value of their own health, mm-hmm. and that's not great. Because if you're not taking care of yourself on a plant-based diet or lifestyle, but you aren't able to, like, satisfy your own basic health requirements, then that's not doing anyone justice. No, it's really not. And I would love to get into that with you in a second. (laughs) But first, I'd really like to talk to you about your own gut health journey. Mm. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, definitely. How long have we got? (laughs) Um, No, I want to keep it relevant because... I think that platforms like this, like it's it's all about people learning from my experience and my story. So Absolutely. hopefully it helps them accelerate their progress and, and their journey. I couldn't agree more. Mm. But I have I have had so many gut challenges. And yeah. so I said before that growing up in Indonesia and eating Indonesian food maybe helped me to keep away from things like gastro. Yeah. But other than that, I've had I've just always had challenges. So I don't know. Maybe that maybe Indonesia did set something up the wrong way. <laughs> Not sure, but um, food sensitivities and like my own versions of eliminations, okay. as a, like from a teenager. So at mm. school, um, like what? Uh, so I was already on board with um, avoiding gluten as a teenager. Mm-hmm. I never went on like strict, strict long periods of no gluten, but I was aware of it and trying to avoid it. So gluten being the protein that we find in wheat. Um, I didn't really like dairy. I never really wanted to consume dairy. I may may have had some cheese and some yogurt, but I was never somebody that wanted to have milk or Mm -hmm. milkshakes um, or those more processed dairies. I didn't naturally didn't eat a lot of processed carbohydrates so if my mum was making pasta I'd never want the pasta yeah. I, I knew nothing really about food as a teenager but I thought the pasta didn't have enough nutrients in it I thought it yeah. was a waste on my plate which is a very like a naive way to think about it Whoa. but now when I talk about building a plate yeah so I was I was like playing around with different foods and avoiding certain foods um, but always very quite, always quite reactive. So I remember um, by the time I got to uni, um, one day I was just in tears. Like I hadn't, I hadn't had a bowel motion in three days. My stomach was blown out like a pregnant person, uh, and I was just like, "What is going on?" Like, so that was when I got quite serious with removing gluten because I mm-hmm. found that that did help me to have more consistent bowel motions. Good. Yeah, when you're not going to the bathroom daily. And by the way, people, we should be going to the bathroom daily, bowel motion daily. Yes. If not, you have a form of constipation. Uh, and I was pretty much constipated for like eight years of my life. Wow. Mm. Oh, my goodness. Um, so really poor bowel motions and 
would get really upset by it like wouldn't go to the bathroom so I couldn't eat because I'd be so full yeah that I just like I'd have no appetite you know after not being able to go to the bathroom for a few days so that impacted my food choices as well because yeah. I just didn't have an appetite yeah um I'd steer clear of them too mm. if that was causing me those problems mm, mm. Mm. um I in my when I was about 20 I had gastritis as well so gastritis is a condition that most people would associate with older people okay um gastritis is a significant reflux so oh. acid from the stomach mm-hmm. uh, making its way to the esophagus okay. and um, our stomach is dealt to deal with the level of acidity um, it's the most acidic part of our body mm-hmm. but our esophagus is not so when acid makes its way there you feel it so I actually, in my first little attack, asked my mum to take me to the hospital because I didn't know what was going on. So if wow. you have a gastritis attack and you've never had it before, mm. you don't know what's going on. Wow. Some men mistake it for a heart attack. Really? It's, it's significant, significant pain. Oh, it sounds terrifying. Yeah. And it's pain that might manifest around the sternum, around the chest, but then it may manifest in nausea. It may manifest in waves of pain across the stomach. Um And you can go through all of those feelings in the space of five minutes and then do it all again and all again and all again. So I was bedridden for about four or five days with my first attack of gastritis at the age of 20. Oh, 20. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. 20. And um, it was literally because of my food choices at that time. And I drank alcohol at that age as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. So impacting it as well. So... I was on medication, a medication called Nexium, which is a proton pump inhibitor. It is an acid-suppressing medication. It is the second most prescribed drug in the Western world behind statins and and lipid um, manipulating drugs. Wow. Mm. So it's a really highly prescribed drug. When I started Nexium, it was only available by prescription, whereas now you can buy it over the counter in lower dose. Dangerous. Yeah, very dangerous. And it is a dangerous medication. You don't want to be on Nexium for a long period of time. It's highly associated with things like stomach cancer. (gasps) So it's acid suppressing. So we need acid in our stomach to help break down food Mm -hmm. and also to activate as a protective mechanism um, against parasites, pathogens. So if you're taking stomach acid suppressing medication, guess what? You lose your digestive capacity and you lose that barrier of defense. Mm -hmm. So I was 20 and I was on that for close to two years. We didn't get taught about the impacts of this medication at university. And I was literally just under the, under the guide of my, my doctor, my, um, my GP. Also, it, it, it is quite like the pain from gastritis was ongoing. So it was like, six to 12 months of recovery uh and had i not had that medication it would have been a lot worse mm. but had i also had uh the at the time the inclination to do a bit more study of my own and i'm embarrassed to say that at 20 i didn't do that own research on my own but had i done that i probably could have got off the medication a lot quicker okay. so so would it have involved changing a few of your lifestyle factors, the foods that you were eating, that type of thing? Yes, it would have. Okay. So I, uh, I quit alcohol for quite a few months at that time, but um, the doctor pretty much just told me to quit alcohol, to quit coffee, don't eat tomatoes. Uh, but there was no discussion around the impact of sugar, the impact of sugar substitutes, the impact of the need for vegetables, uh 
So just missing a whole chunk of information you needed. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of information. And again, that's why I'm saying I'm embarrassed that I didn't do the study on my own and didn't look into it further on my own. But I just didn't because it wasn't part of the curriculum at uni and I studied nutrition at uni. Yeah. It wasn't part of the curriculum. See, so, you can't blame yourself for that though. Honestly, you can't. No, I can't. But also I, I wouldn't know what I know now. Exactly. And you I, wouldn't be able to help people now the way that you have. Yeah, exactly. So the, um, like I said, the, the stomach acid pl- serves a very real purpose in that it protects us mm. uh, against pathogens and bacteria. And what I found out, uh, it would have been close to eight years later, is that I did have parasites. Um, wind back the clock a little bit, though. My health was so poor in my early 20s that I also had reoccurring thrush. Wow. So for... Um, Oh, months and months and months. Oh, you poor I had thrush thing. and I had to uh, literally get the doctor to approve. Like they had, I remember them having to call up some line to get approval to prescribe me this level of antibiotic that <gasps> I needed to go on to, to clear it. Wow. And that just goes to show how poor my defences were, how yep. poor my gut health was, oh, um, wow. you know, to have to be on antibiotics to clear that candida overgrowth mm-hmm. and... You know, I'm telling this story because all of those things led to the point where in my um, in my later 20s, I went through a really challenging time in my life. Mm-hmm. I was um, working heaps. I was studying. I was training for a marathon and I'd just been through a breakup, and, like a really hurtful and painful breakup. Oh. And um, my head started falling out. My stomach was really reactive again, so mm-hmm. I, you know, I was just bloating after a salad. Wow. Um, and you know that something's wrong then when you're when you're reacting to seemingly healthy foods. Mm-hmm. And so I did a little bit of testing. I did comprehensive stool testing, and lo and behold, I had two parasites living in my gut <gasps> and significant dysbiosis. So dysbiosis is essentially an imbalance of the the flora living in your gut microbiome so we have thousands of different strains of um, bacteria living in our gut microbiome if you were to weigh it it'd be about three kilograms worth of bacteria living in our microbiome whoa yeah Uh, i didn't know that yeah three kilos often my weight loss clients say how can i lose those three kilos (laughs) you don't want to trust me you don't want to lose those (laughs) so that three kilos of bacteria you want it to be nice and diverse you want like think of the rainforest you want the rainforest with the with the mm-hmm. low growing plants the high growing trees the and everything in between yeah um because they all serve a different role they they do different things so in our gut we have bacteria that help us to you know um break down certain fibers produce certain um neurotransmitters produce certain nutrients so we want the rainforest of bacteria living in our gut we don't want the um you know, we don't want the barren plain. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a pretty barren plain with a few tall trees. <laughs> Apparently. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow. So you had the thrush for a really long time, which do you think that that was also caused by having no, like, healthy gut bacteria as well? We can only hypothesise, yeah. but I would say yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the, the multiple... Um, rounds of antibiotics would have compounded that as mm. well. Because antibiotics aren't good for our gut bacteria, are they? 
Most of them aren't. So okay. most antibiotics um, go in like a bit of an atomic bomb and, mm-hmm. and do kill off a lot of bacteria. Mm-hmm. But if your defences are low, as in diversity is already low, then the recovery from that antibiotic is going to be even worse. Oh, yeah. yeah. So there are some antibiotics that um, I recommend to clients that are dealing with parasites themselves because they are absorbed in the small intestine so they don't go to the large intestine and, and, have the, and wreak that same level of havoc. Mm-hmm. Um, that particular antibiotic is called paramycin and that has to be prescribed by a by a doctor. Okay. So they're, they're not all as bad as one another. And don't get me wrong, there is a place for antibiotics. So Western medicine serves a very real purpose mm. in treating acute phase illness. Uh, and sometimes antibiotics are required to, to overcome what whatever is there in your way. Definitely. Um, but I think that the issue is, is that we've become a little bit antibiotic happy in that we're prescribing <laughs> them left, right and centre. Yeah. Um, I remember when I was like on my first trip to Thailand, my doctor said, "I'll oh, take these antibiotics with you just in case you fall, fall, feel a little bit ill, take them with you, just take them. <laughs> um, and we have antibiotics in our food these days. Yeah. So when I first stopped eating meat is because I learned about how much antibiotics were used in, in the meat that it in, in, in the animals that are being raised yeah. for meat consumption. That's a hidden part of that industry, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I hope I don't have this stat wrong, but I think it's something like 80% of America's antibiotic use is in the meat and livestock industry. Wow. That is a massive statistic. And, of course, the food that we eat is absorbed into our body and nutrients, all of that in our bloodstream, goes into our lymphatic system. Mm. Oh, that's not good. What we eat is who we are. Mm. So, like I was saying, we can't we can't totally like demonize western medicine or the use of antibiotics or we can't completely avoid the use of antibiotics in some cases but what we can do is set ourselves up so we don't have to be in that position to use them yeah we can we can create really strong gut health we can set really strong um, foundations of of general health we can avoid the antibiotics in Mm. um in animal protein yeah that's something i'd really like to talk about Mm. So continue on with your gut story. Take me back to where we were. Mm, so found out that I had parasites maybe it was age 28, 29, about that time. What does it feel like for me and for the listeners? Do you feel like there's parasites in there? Like what, what is it exactly? Good question. So the parasites that I had, um, one was called Diatomoba fragilis and the other one is Blastocystis hominis. And Say those both really fast. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, you may think, oh, my gosh, she's, she's got, she has parasites, but parasites in Australia aren't that uncommon. So yep. they can be um, passed and transferred by, you know, simply being at a public pool. Wow. You know, there's going to be very microscopic bits of fecal matter there that, that may be the reason for for how that parasite is is, is um, transported from one person to the other. So mm-hmm. parasites in Australia aren't entirely uncommon, but that's not to say they're normal. Mm-hmm. Now, there is uh, some school of thought now around blastocystis and whether or not it is a parasite or a commensal bacteria, which means a bacteria that we should find in our, in our digestive system. Oh. So... Uh, the way I treat blastocystis is if 
the individual is presenting with obvious digestive challenge or health issues, Mm -hmm. then I do treat the blastocystis. And usually the people that come and see me are people with health issues or digestive challenges, so yeah. usually we treat the blastocystis. <laughs> but uh, some some doctors, if perhaps they were, they were doing a stool test and um, the, the individual is not presenting with a lot of health challenges, then some doctors would say leave it there, okay. don't try and overcome it. So the two parasites will have you, – you will usually experience – Symptoms in the acute phase, so within about two weeks of infection, mm-hmm. but symptoms may then dissipate and then the parasites can live in you until you start to notice that your B12 levels are lowering or you get to your wit's end with your digestive challenge mm-hmm. or your nutrient levels in general are lowering or you've got muscle soreness or fatigue or low mood. So these parasites can live in you for a very mm-hmm. long time before you start to dig deeper to, Definitely. to get to the bottom of what's going on. Well, a lot of those things that you just mentioned would be, you know, we were told that we have low B12, but then we wouldn't dig deeper to find a parasite. Yes. that's Yeah, and that's why a lot of people mm. could actually have had these parasites for a long time before they're picked up. Mm. So I will never know how long I had those parasites for. I won't know if they mm. came about, you know, after all of those rounds of antibiotics or if they came about as a result of the Nexium and, and suppressing that stomach acid, mm. or if I picked them up when I was a child in Indonesia. No, no. I just won't know. But due to the state of my gut microbiome and the imbalance there, I hypothesise that they had been there for a while. Yeah. But we won't know. No. No. Not at all. So you mentioned that you were experiencing a really tough time mm. when you were extreme stress the breakup everything like that Mm. how is that affecting you as well at the time how is that affecting me well we know our stress hormones and you know all that sort of stuff can affect our gut microbiome as well yes so for me personally um i had been on the pill whilst i was in that relationship came off it as soon as the relationship ended because i don't like being on the pill Mm. Um, but it took me a very, very long time to get it back, and that's always been that was always the way in my twenties. Yeah. My my period would would not really be there if I wasn't on the oral contraceptive pill. Okay. Probably a result of my eating behaviours, how much activity I was doing, Definitely. and and possibly my gut. Yeah. Um, so my hormones were out of balance. My hair was falling out. I wasn't sleeping very well, mm-hmm. and it was. Actually, my running coach at the time who really helped to pull me out of it to yeah. some degree um, because I was using heart rate data at the time for my training. So I don't, I don't know if you've ever done work with a coach that uses heart rate data, but um, at the beginning of a training session, at the end of the training session and during the training session, my heart rate would be logged. Mm-hmm. And she was noticing that... Um, my heart rate was at times worse, not improving, but getting worse despite the training that I was doing. And she was like, what? I can, I was like, she was like, I can see this is happening. What's going on? And I was like, well, I'm not sleeping well. She's like, why aren't you sleeping well? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was like, oh, work's stressing me out, breakup's stressing me out. And then she was like, well, what are you doing about it? And mm-hmm. I was like, I'm running. 
you know, I'm running lots. Mm. <laughs> she was like, no, no, what are you actually doing about it? Like, are you meditating? Are you deep breathing? Are you doing yoga? You need to do these things yeah. because you can't just be up, up, up. You need to bring yourself down. Yeah. So I was like, I've tried yoga. It's not for me. <laughs> I said that once upon a time too. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was like, it's too slow for me. I need fast. Exactly. I need fast. I need to be working out harder, faster. Yeah, otherwise it's not worth it. Yeah. It's, it's unfortunately part of that calories in versus calorie yeah. out mentality. Yeah, I agree with you. Mm. Um, so I started yoga then and fell in love with it, I think, because I had a real purpose in mind. Yeah. Um, and that purpose was to calm down my nervous system. Slow the frick down. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And just fell in love with it. Like I'm a very competitive person. So I even started like within myself, I was like, oh, great. I'm starting to be able to do balances for longer. Oh, great. I can, you know, I can do tree pose. Like, you know, you get that, you get that sense of gratification just from something simple like a yoga class, which I probably never anticipated. No way. Yeah. Little achievements. Mm, Yeah. So awesome. So I found yoga and probably started practicing like two or three week, two or three times a week at that point, uh, and that really, really helped. If I haven't already said that, but yeah. I distinctly remember sitting in a meeting one day, and um, prior to that point, those meetings would have instigated a little bit of anxiety in me. You know, like um, you know, to do lists are always generated from meetings and. What have you done? What are you going to do? Mm. And it was an intense project that we were working on. And uh, I was just sitting in this meeting room one day and I was like, I know I should be stressed right now, but I'm not. Yes. <laughs> you know? I know my heart would usually be pounding right now, but it's not. That's um, amazing. And I was- what do you think it was for the listeners who have never tried yoga before and are probably living an extremely stressful life? What do you think it was about yoga that perhaps changed that way you were and your anxiety, that sense of stress? Well, when you do yoga, you are forced to deep breathe. You are forced to connect to your breath. You're forced to be present because of that connection to the breath. And we know that when you breathe, breathe deeply, so when you breathe into your belly rather than into your chest, it literally tells your body that you're safe. So cortisol levels go down, adrenaline levels go down, uh, and, it, and it calms down the nervous system. It switches you into that parasympathetic state. And I just think... The opportunity to have practiced that for probably like the first real time for me just meant that it translated over to my day to day. Yeah, that's amazing, mm. incredible. I think yeah, the slow practices, even though we don't want to add them in, they're just a, such a complete necessary part of our overall health. I think we need them. Yeah, they are, and. Um, I work with a lot of athletes in, as part of my job on their nutrition and the, part of the discussion is always what are you doing from a stress management perspective and I guess the term stress management I don't really love because it insinuates that you're stressed and you, you can only start managing it if you are obviously stressed but mm. for athletes let's say for an Ironman who's training potentially 12-14 times a week if their training is always high intensity always you know over 60 minutes in duration and they're just like training work training work training work Mm -hmm. and for some Ironmen they curb their sleep to fit in the training and the work so they're getting six hours of sleep a night you know if they're doing that then 
I can't help them necessarily just through diet. They need to they need to think more broadly. And so if if I'm the only person that introduces them to med- meditation or mindfulness practice, then I have to let myself be that person. I'm yep. by no means an expert in the area at mm. all. Yep. But if I can introduce someone to it, then that can only be a good thing. And I, I started working with a sprinter actually a couple of weeks ago. Mm. And he had a bit of work to do on his diet. (laughs) He cared about his diet. Don't get me wrong. He cared, but there was still a lot of improvement. And I emailed him a week afterwards to say, you know, hey, Brian, how are you doing? How are you feeling? And he wrote back and he just said, I'm great. The meditation's fantastic. It's changed my life. Oh, my gosh. I know. I was so chuffed. I just didn't think he was going to do it. I didn't think he was going to do it, but... You know, he's a driven individual. He's got mm. national championships coming up in six wow. months' time. So he's obviously willing to pull his finger out and do do whatever it takes. Yeah, but definitely. I was stoked with that. Yeah, that's awesome. Pat yourself on the back for that one. I'll pat him on the back for doing it that's because true. it sounds like it should be an easy thing to do. You know, five mm. minutes of deep breathing a day, you know, plugging to your iPhone if you need to use an app to support you in doing it. It sounds like a super simple thing to do, but for a lot of people it's not. Yeah. It comes down to habit. If it's not... It's not a habit, it's not part of the routine, then you won't do it. Exactly. And if you haven't felt the benefits of it, you're not likely to do it ongoing. No. You really have to do it for a long or at least give it a couple of goes until you really start to feel the benefits from it and then you're more likely to do it again because it feels good. Yes, exactly. Or hear someone's story. You know, hear my story when I was sitting there in the boardroom, like suddenly like having this out-of-body experience where I was like, I'm not stressed and I should be stressed. Use that as the motivation. Yeah, I had to hear someone else's story to motivate me. Um, The first time I started, like, dabbling in meditation. Mm -hmm. Um, Meditation expert, and her name escapes me because names always escape me. Um, (laughs) She's Paul Ruse's wife, though. So Paul Ruse is an AFL coach who Mm -hmm. um, coached the Sydney Swans to a premiership flag and I heard his wife speak at a an event on mindfulness for the workplace and she told the story of how her and Paul first getting in first started getting into meditation together so they yeah they decided that they would you know spend their five to ten minutes away in their room doing meditation while the kids were doing whatever they were doing Mm -hmm. and she tells the story of how you know, in her mind, she was like, you know, is this doing anything? You know, Paul, should we keep doing it? Should we not? Keep, should we? Should we? Should we not do it? Um, but the, she kept doing it, and one day she was out in the front yard, like in the driveway, getting the kids into the car, and her neighbour was like, "What have you done?" And she was like, "What do you mean? What have I done?" And the neighbour was like, "Usually, when you're getting the kids into the car, you're yelling, you're screaming, you're grumpy." But at the moment, you're just calm. You're so nice. <laughs> that's um, awesome. And that's when she stopped to think and she was like, it's the meditation. It's the only thing I've done differently. It's the meditation. That's and when so I heard cool. that story, I was like, I want to be that person. <laughs> yes. Oh, just so calm and collected all the time. Yeah. You seem yeah. like that person. Mm, maybe. <laughs> but, it, but it wasn't until I had that real like that time in my life when I was training for that marathon and like my hair was falling out and that stress was happening. It wasn't until then, unfortunately, that I was really at the point where I realised, okay, I have to do the yoga, I have to do the meditation because 
I have to bring myself out of this. Well, for most people it is. It's like once we hit rock bottom, that's the wake-up call, you know. For us, it's probably a really good thing now to try and jump in the middle of people right before, like, you know, way before, you know, burnout is about to happen and sort of instill these self-care practices early. But for a lot of people, it's kind of like when we're at our wits end, like that's when we have to sort of climb ourselves out of that hole we've dug ourselves into. Yes. Yeah, precisely. And I think you, you and I are both on the same page in that we want these stories to help people Pro- progress that you know exactly. maybe avoid the like prevention bottom. rather than treatment yes yeah yeah always which is why nutrition is so important oh completely. preventing the illnesses preventing the need to potentially have the antibiotics one day exactly Pre- preventing the need to to have the nexium or the pharmaceutical medication there is so much that can be prevented through just eating the right food yeah it is literally the foundation of health yeah so many of our chronic illnesses could be avoided if we followed, a, you know, a certain nutritional program or, you know, avoided different lifestyle factors. Yeah, yeah, exactly. People don't know that, though. No. And, like, there are some factors that we can't avoid. You know, we are unfortunately exposed to toxins, you know, without our choice, mm-hmm. you know, without us having a choice in it. Yeah. We can reduce our exposure to toxins by, um, you know, not not using plastic containers, mm-hmm. Um choosing to grow our own food which i don't do yet or choosing to eat all organic food which i actually don't do either mm-hmm. um but we can start to reduce our exposure to toxins and that could also be through you know changing the products you're using at home changing the skin products you use the hair products you use so that they're they're low toxin toxin free yeah. um so there are some things that are sort of out, out of our control in terms of toxin exposure but again there are some things that are in control with toxin exposure mm. um you know there are some things that are out of, out of our control like our genetics mm. um, but then we know that you know genetics aren't then they're just the loaded gun the trigger hasn't been pulled no so we can still even do the right thing by our genetics by eating a certain way moving it moving a certain amount yeah. thinking a certain way yeah so that gene's just not turned on <laughs> yeah Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, you know, those people that say, like, oh, it's in my genes, you know. Um, That's a death ha- sentence. No. Yeah. It doesn't have to be that way. Mm. Oh, incredible. And I just definitely think you just don't accept what you've been told, you know, just because you think you're going to have diabetes because it's in my family. Don't accept that as the final thing. You know, you can avoid it. Mm-hmm. And, and we'll talk about that. I want to talk about toxins really, really quickly. What is so bad about toxins? Like, what do they do inside our body? Why are they bad for us? Mm. So just one way to consider it is that they can become, like, they can block receptors. Mm -hmm. So they can impact the ability for our body's own chemicals. So think of hormones as a chemical. They can impact our body to read read those chemical signals Mm -hmm. and be able to use those chemical signals. So that's just one way in which toxins can be so damaging. Um, toxins also require detoxing, so they require elimination from our body, and that can put a lot of stress on our detox pathways as well. So our liver and that yeah. sort of thing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Liver so, in particular. Mm. I want to talk about how to eliminate toxins for a second. What What are the things that we can do? So obviously, avoiding uh, chemicals, using natural products, that type of thing, you know, if we can, opting for organics. But let's talk about like diet wise would you put someone on a meal plan to sort of like flush sort of things out of your body yeah 
Um, so not talking like a specific detox, but just in general supporting detox, detox pathways. Yeah. Uh, it is important to support the liver with food. So mm-hmm. uh, we know that sulfur-containing vegetables really do allow that and support the liver. So that's things like that's our cruciferous vegetables. So that's things like okay. broccoli, cabbage, uh, Brussels sprouts, cauliflower, those green cruciferous Yum. vegetables. Very yummy, and I recommend at least two cups of those a day, um, you know, particularly in, t- in times when we know the liver is under pressure, but for anybody is going to benefit from having those two cups of green cruciferous vegetables mm-hmm. per day. Mm-hmm. Hydration. Hydration is uber important. You know, if we think about um, if we think about food as being the foundation of good health, hydration sits there. Yeah. I don't know what sits under foundations, but... <laughs> I don't know, the pillars. Yeah. Um, but hydration is really important. So I say minimum two litres of water per day. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, that may change a little bit depending on the size of the individual, the, the, you know, the temperature, or the humidity in, in, in the place that they live. Yeah. Um, but I usually say two litres a day and an, an additional 500 mils for every hour that you're sweating nice. over the course of the day mm-hmm. as well. Brilliant. Mm, so... They're just some really, I guess, basic nutritional strategies to support the liver, Um, depending on whether there's any, like, heavy metals that we've identified, so whether that be excess copper levels, Mm -hmm. um, then I may recommend the use of some supplements. Again, it depends on the individual, and my preference is always to work with real food as much as possible, Um, but sometimes additional vitamin C can be really helpful um, or uh, N-acetylcysteine, otherwise known as NAC. Um, It's a precursor to one of our major antioxidants, which is glutathione. So that NAC can really support the liver in doing its job as well. So much to learn and so much to know. Yeah, but just a note, like I do prefer to work with real food and supplements always need to be used you know, in respect to the individual and where they're at. So NAC is not something you can go and buy off the the chemist shelf. Um, So you do need to work with a practitioner to use something like that. Okay. Amazing. That's Mm. awesome. I didn't know that. I'd love to learn more about that. What I want to talk about is I want to go back to when you you felt like you were at rock bottom and your health and your hair was all falling out. Mm. You started to do yoga. Yes. What else did you do? Um, I started to look at my diet. So I, because I had, I worked in the corporate health industry for a long time. So it was more populational health rather than one-on-one health. And I had, you know, not been, not been so focused on my own nutrition and nutrition in general. So obviously I still ate really well, um, but wasn't doing the eliminations and that sort of thing that I was doing in my early 20s because my digestive health had been relatively good sort of between the ages of like 23, 22 and the age of 27, 28. Um, So at that point I did start to focus a lot more on my diet again. So I played around with low FODMAP. I played around with completely eliminating certain vegetables. Um, I went completely gluten-free at that time. Mm -hmm. I never really ate a lot of dairy anyway throughout my 20s, so that wasn't really something that I did. Were you Um, eating meat at this stage? No, I wasn't eating meat at this stage. And this is like a really good part of the conversation to get to around, 
you know, doing plant-based well and, and yeah. when to start plant-based. Yeah, let's When to start a plant-based it. lifestyle because mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I wasn't healthy. I had parasites that were that were drawing on my own nutrients. I had dysbiosis, which meant I wasn't even breaking down food properly. Um, I wasn't sleeping well. I was training a lot. Um, and I decided to go 100% plant-based all around about this time. Oh. And I wasn't able to sustain it. Okay. And that's what I really want people to understand is that if the purpose of taking on a plant-based lifestyle is to is to support the environment and food sustainability for you know our children and our children's children or if it's to you know minimize impact on animals or if it's for the sake of their health then you have to come back to making the lifestyle sustainable and to make the lifestyle sustainable you have to be healthy yeah so understand your level of health before you decide to go 100% plant-based and I say 100% because I use the term plant-based in the sense that you could have a 95% plant-based diet and allow maybe some room for some animal product whether it's like butter eggs or you know you yeah. go into meat there's a lot of flexibility with people definitely yeah, yeah but I have used the, the term plant-based before on social media and copped a lot of flack from oh, like, okay. vegans who said who, how can you call yourself plant-based? So yes, that is my better not to have a label as well. Exactly, that's why I use plant-based because it's not a strict label. <laughs> but if you are a hundred percent plant-based, then you need to understand your level of health before you go into it, so you can know whether you've got bridging to do or whether you've just got maintenance to achieve right. through through your food choices. Yeah. So what I mean by that is well. If you have low B12 levels going into your plant-based lifestyle, uh, well, there's no question that you have to start supplementing right from the get-go. Definitely. So um, that's just one example. But, you know, if your B12 levels are adequate, then you maybe have less, like, lower dose of supplementing or you don't have to supplement straight away. Yeah. I would actually say because you can't get B12 on a purely plant-based diet that you should always supplement with it and it's a lot of soluble vitamins and it's very little risk of toxicity. But um, that's something you should understand your levels of Mm. before you take on the lifestyle. Definitely. And a note to listeners in Australia, we have really loose reference ranges for B12. Okay. So depending on the lab that you use to do your testing, B12 is something that we test through the blood. Depending on the lab that's used, you know, they may have a reference range of somewhere between 180 to 500 picomoles per litre. Now, you don't have to, you know, be a lab technician or a nutritionist to understand that a reference range of 180 to 500 is quite loose. yeah. Yeah. So do you want to be at 185 and told that you're fine? Or do you want to be at 495 and told that you're fine? You know, I know for me and my athletes, I want them at 495. And there are some countries around the world whose reference ranges start around there. Wow. So in Australia, we have really loose reference ranges. That's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you want to know whether you're at the the lower end of that reference range or outside the reference range Mm -hmm. before you take on an approach to diet, which is going to be completely void of b12 yeah you can't get b12 on a plant-based diet you know some people say well what about um like 
supplements or fortified nutritional yeast, I don't like relying on those as a source Mm -hmm. of B12. Apparently you need to eat like, I don't know what it was, three serves of nutritional yeast a day in order to just get like a little bit or enough of the B12. It's a lot, but it's not. A, it's a B twelve analog, okay. so it's it's not even necessarily going to provide the value that you that you need. Mm. So mm. you just may as well supplement. I've been in the position of being B twelve deficient, and I felt like I was dying. So anyone, do you know listening, how low you were by any chance? I don't know how low I was, but I also was like below eight in my iron count. Yeah, okay. so I was so very unwell. Yeah. yeah, I was like superbly fatigued. I was like needing to sleep all the time. I barely had any energy to do any work, any exercise. It's horrible. Yeah, we've got so like those really low. Mm. Yeah, um, and I made a decision that I I didn't want to be plant based if I had to have any nutritional supplements other than B twelve. For me, yeah. that was just like a little rule that I set for myself. Yeah, so. When I found out I had the parasites, I did start eating animal products again Mm -hmm. because I also had really low iron at that point, so I wanted Mm. to pull myself out of the hole. Now, some people may really turn their nose up at me for for that if they're they're purely plant-based, but because I, around that time, decided that real food needed to be my base, I wanted to try and avoid um, nutritional supplements. So I was taking... um, I was taking herbal supplements to get rid of the parasites, so uh-huh. um, herbal parasite cleanse supplements. Oh. Um, but I didn't want to take things that I could potentially get through diet. Yeah. So I was using animal products strategically, so, you know, grass-fed, organic beef a couple of times a week um, was how I used animal products, and I think I used a bit of butter at that time as mm-hmm. well. Iron is another one. So you mentioned your <laughs> iron levels. Yeah. Mm. And, again, quite a large reference range. So iron, um, for, for particularly my athletes, I would want their iron levels to be at about 20 mm-hmm. and ferritin levels to be up to about 100. Okay. Um, and, unfortunately, I see a lot of women who are down below the 50 mark with their ferritin and sometimes even, you know, 2015, 11, that's when it gets really scary. Um, So, you know, you have to consider where your iron is coming from at that point, whether it's coming through plant-based sources like spinach and spirulina uh, or whether it's coming from animal sources if you choose, like a really good quality red meat or if it's coming through supplements. But this is where the conversation around gut health comes back into it because if, you can't break down the food or break down the supplement and access the nutrient and absorb and retain that nutrient, then it's basically just going to be lost in the wash and you're going Mm. to have real trouble regaining those stores. Okay. Mm -hmm. So iron, for example, we know that the iron contained uh, within uh, plant-based products, so non-heme iron, Mm -hmm. is less bioavailable than heme iron, which is what we find in animal protein. So it's less bioavailable, so you already have a bit of a handicap, which means you've got to consume more of that plant-based iron Mm -hmm. and you've also got to be able to really maximise the amount of iron that's there in that food. So if you've got poor digestive capacity, like let's say you've got low stomach acid, your digestive enzymes aren't firing, then you're going to have trouble breaking down that food. 
And then let's say you've got increased intestinal permeability, which some people may hear being referred to as leaky gut. Yeah. If you've got that leaky gut, then you're not going to be able to retain those nutrients. So, you know, I do work with clients who who are plant-based, who, who do, you know, who do want to use a supplement, and that's fine. I always have that conversation about what their options are. Um, but the supplements don't always work mm-hmm. because you've got that increased intestinal permeability. It doesn't matter whether it's a piece of spinach, a piece of beef, or a capsule. Gonna... You're not always going to be able to retain that iron. Yeah. So it's really important to optimize gut health to support nutrient status. Thank you so much for listening, team. Make sure you dive into the show notes over at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au forward slash podcast. Now, before you go, can I ask you a favor? I'd be so grateful if you would leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I personally read every review and comment and love hearing your aha moments and takeaways from each episode. Together, we can continue to spread the real food love. See you next time on The Real Food Reel. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.